This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With that being said, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, I suggest you try to find it by looking up a table of contents because it's a small book, so it can be hard to find. Uh, you can find chapter 3 by looking for the big number 3, and then we're going to be in verses 13 through 22 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we actually have some on the back table. We'd love to give that to you as a gift from us today. Uh, hopefully one of several gifts that you get through being here, and so we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word in their hands because that's what we believe the Bible is. We believe what Jesus said when he said that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, have all been written by people, but inspired by God himself. And so to read the Bible is to hear the voice of God. And that's why we take time at the highlight of our worship service to read from the Bible and to hear it explained to us so that God might speak to each one of our hearts. So we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3 this morning as we continue our series in this ancient letter. Uh, from the Apostle Peter. And as you, as you make your way to, to chapter 3, verse 13, um, as some of you know, I used to do a lot of backpacking back in my younger years. And uh, one, of the, one of the crucial items on a backpacking trip is making sure that you have the right kind of sleeping bag. It needs to be lightweight because every pound matters when you are literally carrying it on your back. And, and it needs to be very warm because uh, you can get very cold at night, especially up in high altitudes. One of these trips, I was out, and my brother-in-law came with me, and it was his first time coming. And, and you could tell it was his first time for several reasons. I won't go into all of them. But one was, he showed up with a typical camper sleeping bag. So those things are like, you know, 12 pounds, like, and they're big, and they're fluffy, and they're honestly not even all that warm. And again, 12 pounds might not seem like a much, but in a backpacking sleeping uh, bag, that's going to be typically about two to three pounds. And again, you might not think there's a big difference between nine pounds, but when you're carrying nine pounds over, you know, a hundred mile trip uh, with about 5,000 feet of a climb, you feel every single one of those pounds. And so he was not ready. He was not ready at all. And, and to make matters worse, it wasn't even that warm. And so that night, uh, as happens in the mountains, the air gets really cool. And so he's just shivering. He's so cold. He brought the wrong sleeping bag and he's absolutely freezing. I'm feeling warm and toasty. You know, I'm like, I'm like taking layers off because like I'm like sweating. It's so hot, you know, and um, it, I had what's called a, it's, it's a negative 40 rated sleeping bag. So literally like you'd be negative 40 degrees outside and I'll be cool. Uh, my brother-in-law, he, he did not have that. And so he's like trying to say, hey, you know, could, could we like, can you unzip it and can we like sleep under it together? And I'm like, listen, buddy, it's odd enough that you're sleeping with my sister. Like there's no way that I'm getting on the same covers with you, you know, um, and so survival of the fittest, and, you know, he, he did make it through that, but, um, but, but I tell you that story to say this. This morning, we're going to read a text that's going to speak to us about hope. And I think hope is like having my sleeping bag, not my brother-in-law's. When you are inside the hope that God provides, then no matter what is going on outside of you, there is warmth and rest and peace and joy because of what you are surrounding yourself with. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, but right now our country has a tremendous hope problem. The CDC recently released a report 
uh, from a survey given to teenagers in which over 44% of American teens across every demographic reported feelings of hopelessness about their future. That is more than three times as much as said it in 2009. Not so sad because teenagers should be some of the most hopeful, shouldn't they? they? They have their whole lives in front of them. And yet, whether it's from the negative impact of social media or the upheaval of the politics of the last six years or all the social injustices that have been exposed or all that happened during COVID-19, whatever the reasons, for almost half the teenagers in America, they look at the future and they feel hopeless. That is sad. But it's not surprising because really across every demographic in our country, we are reporting higher levels of fear, anxiety, stress, of being overwhelmed, and all of these are contributing to a general sense of being hopeless. And that's just not, not just out there. Like, I'm sure that we can feel those things, can't we? I know that I can sometimes feel those things. And the original readers of First Peter, they knew something about being hopeless as well. They were living in a culture where to become converted to Christianity meant that you could lose your job, meant you probably would be disowned by your family, and the Romans could capture you and throw you to the gladiatorial games and you could be killed for your faith. And there was nothing they could do about that. There was no means they had to bring about any kind of change to that environment. They were just there and that was just what was going to happen. And it was into that hopeless situation that God inspired the Apostle Peter to write this letter, which is filled with so many messages of hope. When we typically think about hope, we think about maybe something that we wish for the future. And so right now, we are hopeful that the Eagles will make the playoffs. Right? I hope that happens, but I've also been an Eagles fan long enough to know, I sure can't guarantee that happening. Right? But, but, but the hope here that we're about to read is not a, a wish for the future. It is a certainty upon which we can bank our lives. The hope that we're about to read about is a sure confidence about the future that gives us strength to meet the challenges of the present. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 13, chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, and consider how God invites us into his hope and the difference that's meant to make in our lives. I'm going to read verse 13 through verse, verses 22. I'm reading from the translation known as the English Standard Version. This is the Word of God. Now who there, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, now as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's bow our heads with the word of prayer that God might bless the preaching of his word. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to you now to bless this time through your Holy Spirit. That the same Spirit which inspired these words to be written by Peter would now open our hearts to understand what you are to say to us. God, thank you that you know each one of us and you love each one of us. And so as we come to you today, you want to meet us right where we are. You want to speak to our hearts. But because you love us so much, you don't want to leave us as we are. You want us to continue to grow in knowing you more and more, whether it is for people today who do not yet believe in you, that today would be the day that they come to, or for those of us who do believe in you, that today would be a day where our faith is built up in the way that we need it to be built up. Lord, we come and we open ourselves to you. We pray that you would do a good work in each one of our lives. For the praise of Jesus' name, amen. So verse 15 gives the instruction to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. That presupposes that there is hope that is in you. And that the hope is something that actually doesn't make sense to people around you. They're asking questions because they're looking at your life and they're seeing your hope and they don't know why you're hopeful. You know, when someone wins the lottery, no one is surprised when they are hopeful people. Uh, When they start talking about their rosy future, when they start talking about how they don't have to worry about money again, we're not wondering like, oh, I wonder why you're so upbeat this morning. Like, no, their hope has very tangible reasons. It's very obvious why they are hopeful. But what this text is talking to us about is about having a hope that makes no sense. Because it's a hope that does not come from good things that have happened to us. It's a hope that's present even when terrible things happen to us. The kind of hope that's being talked about here is is the kind of hope that when people see what you are going through and yet also see the hope that's coming out of you, they've got some questions for you. And so I think what Peter's talking about this morning, he's talking about a hope that speaks. He's talking about a hope that speaks, a hope that, that says something about what we believe about God. And so this morning, as we consider having this hope that speaks, I want to look at two things. Um, having the source of hope, the source of hope, and then the opportunity of hope. The source of hope and the opportunity of hope. And we're going to spend the most of our time on the first point, uh, but the application of the second is, is crucial. And so let's get into this morning the, the source of hope. In order for us to see where this hope comes from in verse 15, we have to go back upstream and see what Peter's writing about in verse 14. In verse 14, he talks about the context of suffering. He says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Righteousness means living rightly according to God's ways. And the major theme we've seen in 1 Peter is that when you follow God, you might suffer for it. If you don't do that shady thing that your boss wants you to do, but walk in integrity instead. If you don't get crazy at that party like everyone else is, but live the sober life that God calls us to. If you don't enter into that gossip and talking bad about that person like everyone else is, right? the, the list goes on, but, but basically the point is that if we follow the ethical ways of Jesus, 
that will at times put us at odds with people. And try as hard as we might to be kind and generous and gracious, we can still suffer for following Jesus Christ. And, and that can provoke us to fear. Because we don't like to have people not like us. It, it can provoke us to be fearful of, of what could, could happen to us by people's displeasure in us. We, we, we can sometimes have fear that can grip our hearts. But here's what we're to do. We're to have hope over fear. We're to have hope over fear. And how are we to have that hope? Where, where's that hope come from? He says in verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Watch, but verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The source of hope is honoring Jesus Christ. To honor means to, have, to hold in high esteem, to respect, to highly regard. And this says to honor the Lord as holy. Holy means to be separate or separate apart. What this is saying is that we, we are to honor Jesus as the Lord who is like no other. Don't just hold Him in high esteem, but honor Him with the greatest esteem. Honor Him as the most preeminent being in existence. This is calling us to worship Jesus as our God. And when we do, then we will be filled with hope. Why? What's the connection between honoring Jesus as the Holy Lord and having a hope-filled life? Well, there's all kinds of connections, but Peter draws our attention to some specific things about Jesus in verses 18 through 22. Now, I'm not sure about you, as we were reading through that, I'm sure you had a lot of questions. Um, if you didn't have a lot of questions, I could point out all kinds of things that are very confusing about that passage. They could give you a lot of questions. Uh, this is one of the more obscure uh, parts of the Bible, where, where many people are trying to figure out what exactly is Peter trying to say here. You've got these spirits in prison, what's going on with that? And apparently Jesus went there and proclaimed something to them. Uh, during the days of Noah, but Noah lived like 2,000 years before Jesus. So like, how did that happen? And then baptism gets thrown in there. And uh, you want to start getting Christians like being confused about stuff, just start talking about baptism. And, and so it seems like Peter's like saying all kinds of crazy things. Well, what exactly is going on? Uh, and as I considered how to go through this text, I, I thought I could spend some time outlining uh, the four or five different interpretations and ways you could take this. And we could spend a lot of time, time looking at the particular pros and cons of each approach and we could get all involved in the weeds of that, but I think to do so would actually miss the point. Uh, because while the particulars uh, might be a little confusing, the overall point is actually very, very clear. Um, and so I'll walk through what, what this is saying. Uh, instead of focusing on the confusing things we're not exactly sure, well, let's focus on what this is saying that we can be very sure about. It says in verse 18 that Jesus suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. Jesus the righteous suffered for us. The unrighteous. Unrighteousness is not living rightly. According to God's will. Unrighteousness is choosing to wake up. And to use the air that God gave you to breathe. With the lungs that God gave you to breathe with. And acting as if there is no God. Acting as if you are the God of your own life. We all have this inward bent to deny God and instead worship at the throne of the trinity of me, myself, and I. To live with ourselves as the center of the universe. This is unrighteousness. This is disregarding God. And this unrighteousness, this gives us a problem with God. When I drop my kids off for school in two weeks, which is just crazy, 
crazy to me that that's only two weeks away. And I do want to go on record in protest saying school should not start before Labor Day. I don't know what the world is coming to. This is just unbelievable. Amen. But if they go into their classroom and their teacher completely ignores them, completely disregards them, doesn't say their name, looks straight through them, doesn't respond to them in any way, acts as if they aren't there, I'm going to feel some type of way about that. Ignoring someone is one of the most disrespectful things you can do to that person. So how should we expect God to feel about us when we ignore him? We wonder why God has a problem with us. Maybe it's because we see right through him and act as if he isn't even there. And and when someone does something wrong, when we see a crime committed, for example, what do we want to see happen? We want to see justice happen, don't we? The FBI just had this big sting. I'm not sure if you saw that, but they just caught 84 human traffickers, people who have been selling children. Right? What do we want to see happen to those people? We want to see them face justice. They come before the judge, and the judge is like, oh, you're really sorry? Okay, I'm sure you're good at heart. You can go free. And turns a blind eye to the wrongs we had done. There should be an outcry, shouldn't there? There should be something that arises in our hearts that says, this is not right. Why do we want God to be less ju- just than the judges of earth? Right? Why, why do we want God to be this being that when wrongs come before him, he just turns a blind eye to them? A, a God who is not a God of justice is not a God who's worth worshiping at all. It's a God to be disregarded, who should be disregarded. And so we, we should want God to be a God of justice. The same justice that's in our hearts, that, that's been put there by God himself. God's a God of justice, and that's where our sense of justice comes from. And yet God being a God of justice immediately creates a problem between us and him. Because if God's not going to turn a blind eye to wrongs, as we shouldn't want him to, what do we do with the fact that we sometimes can do wrong? This is why Jesus, the righteous, came to suffer for the unrighteous. In Jesus, every sinful thought, every sinful deed, all the wrongs of anyone who would believe in him, they are poured into his soul on the cross. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. As the Apostle Peter writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made Jesus, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. See, see, what First Peter is telling us here is that Jesus took what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves. He took our sin and guilt and shame so that we could get his forgiveness, love, and grace. He suffered for our sins so that our sins would no longer keep us from God. He suffered so that we wouldn't have to. And now, instead of being judged by God, we instead can be brought near to God. We can have a relationship with God. We don't have to be afraid of His judgment, but rather we can be embraced by His love. And the reason we know Jesus' sufferings for us is effective to remove God's judgment from us is because what this verse, these verses go on to say. Jesus didn't just die. No, if you're drowning and someone jumps in to save you, but they die trying, they fail. It's like, hey, I really appreciate the effort, but I'm still drowning here, and this does me no good. <laughs> right? um, but Jesus' death was not a failure. 
because his death was not his end. While it's unclear who these spirits are that's being talked about in verse 19 and this whole Noah thing, what is clear is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. The word in verse 19, it says he, he proclaimed. That literally means that he declared a victory. You know what you need to do in order to be able to declare victory? You need to be alive to declare victory. That's what this text is telling us. That Jesus, he suffered for us, but he didn't just suffer and die. He suffered and died and he rose again to proclaim his victory over death. That's why verse 21 says that he has been resurrected. He has come back to life. I've taught before about the historical evidence that we have for how we can believe, why we, why we should believe that Jesus came back to life. There's lots of reasons, lots of good reasons, historical reasons about how we can be sure that the reason Jesus' tomb is empty is because death was not his end, but he truly is now alive. But for our purposes this morning, I don't want to repeat those evidences. You can look at other things I've, I've spoken on about that. But rather, I want to draw attention to what this text is drawing our attention to, which I believe is the effect that Jesus' victory and resurrection is meant to have on our lives. What this is connecting for us is saying that the reason we can know we are forgiven, the reason we can know our guilt has been paid for and our shame is covered is because Jesus not only said his death washes away our sins, but he proved it by not staying dead. See, what this is telling us is that Jesus suffered for us and then he was raised for us. What this is telling us is that Jesus went into the dark cave of death and he punched through it to the other side and came back to life so that now for anyone who believes in him, when we die, death is no longer our end, but it's a cave he's punched through. And so now for us, death is a tunnel that leads us to the light of his love forever. Jesus is the one who died to bring forth life. And this is one of the unique things about our Christian faith. There, there are so many religions that say so many different things about salvation and eternal life and, and the, way, the way there, wherever there might be. Uh, I was talking with someone once and they, they're like, well, you know, I think in order to make an informed choice about what to have faith in, I think I need to study everything. And then once I see all my options, I'll make a decision. I was like, hey, I appreciate that. You know, as someone who's, uh, you know, pursuing my doctoral, I, I, I appreciate education. Like, I think that's a, good, that's a good thing. I'm not knocking that at all. But I was also like, you know, good luck because there's a new religion invented every day. So I don't know at what point you're going to, like, exhaust every major religion, you know, everything out there. Um, now, again, I'm not trying to knock that because I have spent time studying the major world religions, and there's certainly benefit to that. But, but just to save you all some time, there's only one religion that has someone who came back from the dead. And is what we believe in. It is, it is, it is Jesus Christ. People ask me, why, why do you believe that the Bible is true? Why do you believe that Jesus is the way of salvation? I'm like, well, because if someone dies and says they're going to come back to life and they do it, I generally pay attention to what they have to say. Our, our, our faith is founded upon the evidence that God has given that he has raised Jesus from the dead. Our faith is, is grounded in the historical fact that his tomb is empty, and it wasn't because his body was stolen or lost. It's because he took back his life. And so what this is telling us is that Jesus suffered and died, and Jesus rose again. But not just that. This goes on to tell us this in verse 22. 
Jesus is ruling forever. Jesus, it says in verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, what this is saying, there is no higher authority than Jesus's. There's no greater power in his than his. Which is why verse 21 says that baptism now saves us. Not because the act of baptism has any saving power in and of itself. No, we can't contribute to anything that Jesus has done. Jesus has all saving power. But when we get baptized, we're showing that we put our trust in him. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, we now can have, as verse 21 talks about, a good conscience to make an appeal to God. Not because we're good people and always do the right thing. That, that's not our good conscience. Our good conscience is we trust Jesus. And we trust that what he has done through suffering for us, what he has done through rising again for us, and where he is by now ruling over all for us, we trust him. And so our conscience is clear because Jesus' work is fully complete. Our, our appeal to God is not ourselves. Our appeal to God is Jesus. And that's what baptism is. That word baptism means to be immersed. We are baptized and we are fully immersed in the baptismal waters. We are showing that through faith in Christ, we've now been fully immersed in Jesus. He is our hope, not ourselves. Nothing about us. It's Him. And so baptism doesn't save us. Baptism testifies to the truth that we are saved because our trust is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And the reason that we can trust Jesus and Him alone is because there is nothing and no one who can take away His power to forgive. There is nothing and no one who can take away His ability to love and His ability to bless any who put their trust in Him. Like, Jesus doesn't have to check with a boss to make sure this is okay. Jesus doesn't have to consider whether there might be forces outside of Himself that are beyond His control that might stop Him from being able to save us. No, He is the highest authority. And He is the supreme power. Everything, as verse 22 says, has been subjected to Him. And so because everything is subjected to Him, there is nothing that can change what He says will happen if we put our trust in Him. In other words, our hope is not just that Jesus died. It's not just that Jesus rose again. It's that Jesus now rules over everything. This, this is our hope. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus ruled. And that's the big picture of what's going on here in verses 18 through 22. The particulars might be confusing, but as we step back and look at the forest instead of the trees, what this is saying is magnificent. This is saying that no matter what happens against us, no matter what we might go through, we can still have hope because the source of our hope does not come from what is happening to us, but from the God who suffered for us, who rose for us, and is reigning forever as he promises to bring us hope. In other words, what Jesus has done in the past secures our faith what he will do in the future. And that gives us hope in the present. What he's done in the past through dying and rising secures our faith that as he rules in the future, we will be saved. And so that's meant to give us hope in the present no matter what we go through. The past points to the future which gives us hope in the present. That, 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 that's how the hope of Jesus works. Now, I do want to be honest with you. I deeply believe these things. And yet at the same time, I can still deeply doubt these things. I can look into this world and see so many hard things that happen. I can look out my own life and see so many challenges in front of me. Sometimes challenges that come from inside of me. 
Like, I think some of our hardest problems are the problems we create ourselves, aren't they? I can look at that and I can be tempted to despair, be discouraged. Sometimes, if I'm honest, it can feel like the darkness is me. And I know that God has promised never to leave me nor forsake me, but sometimes, if I'm honest, I can feel abandoned. I can feel alone. But then I think of Peter, the guy who wrote this book. He also knew something of discouragement. On the day when Jesus was taken to be crucified, Peter fled. He saw Jesus suffering. He saw what he thought was the darkness winning. And he thought that his Lord had failed. And so Peter's like, I'm out. He thought Jesus' suffering was that. What he didn't realize as he saw that suffering, what I can sometimes forget as I go through my own sufferings, and I'm sure you go through your own sufferings as well, is that in God's economy, suffering is never the end. God is so much of a God that even suffering can't stop his power. And so even suffering can be the means through which God accomplishes his victory. This is what Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us that what appeared to be his darkest moment, the moment when he was killed in a horrific way by a mindless mob, that moment, that dark moment of history, gave way to the day when Jesus emerged from the grave and split history into B.C. and A.D., and now everything is measured by him. See, he suffered, but it was his suffering that led to his victory. He died, but it was his death that brought forth the way to eternal life. And so if we honor Jesus as holy, if we, if we worship him, if we value him, if we treasure him above all things, friends, to set our minds on Jesus is to fill our hearts with hope. Because of what he has done in the past, because of where he is ruling right now, we can trust him for the future, and we can be hopeful in our present. In Jesus, our best days are always ahead of us because they are leading us to everlasting life with Him. If you're a follower of Jesus, this life is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. And we, we, we forfeit our hope, though, when we allow the cares of this world to weigh heavy on our hearts as if this world is all that there is. Jesus has shown us it's not. It's not. The theme of 1 Peter is that we are exiles here. This earth is not our true home. There is life after death, and we know that because there is one who has gone to death and come back to life. And we can be saved from the death we deserve by trusting in Jesus. To sum it all up, his indestructible life is the source of unexhaustible hope. And living with hope in Jesus, when we live this way, when we... When we put our hope in his indestructible life and have, therefore, an unexhaustible means of hope. When we put our hope in Jesus, not only does this bless us, not only does this comfort us, not only does this give us peace in the midst of our sorrows, not only does this give us joy in the midst of our pain, not only does this produce wellness in our souls, even when we're suffering in life, not only does this hope do tremendous things for us, it's actually something God wants to use to do something through us. Let's look at the opportunity of hope. 
seen the source of hope, let's look at the opportunity of hope. Verse 15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Now this verse, if you've been around uh, Christianity for any length of time, which I know some of you have, some of you haven't, um, but for those of you who haven't been around Christianity for any time, if you're newer to the Bible, this verse is a verse that's typically used for uh, a study of theology called apologetics. Apologetics comes from the Latin word apologia, to make a defense. And so people go here to this verse to talk about how we need to be ready to make a defense for our faith. We need to have an answer to any question that gets asked us. And so people, you know, ask questions like, well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Or why would a good God allow evil to exist? Or how can you know that the Bible is actually God's word? Those are all apologetic type questions. Those are good questions. And I personally love thinking through those things. Apologetics has been a personal discipline of mine in study for over 20 years. I've actually taught on it in a seminary and in college. I love the study of apologetics. But I do want to say, I don't think this text is talking about classic apologetics at all. I don't think this is talking at all about how we need to be ready to answer any question about anything. What is in view here is that non-believers are seeing the different kind of mindset that a disciple of Jesus has. They're seeing hope, even though there seems to be no reason for hope. And so they want to know what's up with that. And so I think in some ways, you know, for those of you who feel like I'm just not equipped to be able to share about my faith, I think this text actually lowers the bar for us in a really helpful way. This isn't saying that we need to understand the contours of the apologetic arguments around the, you know, cosmological argument for God's existence or Ventilian presuppositionalism. Uh, listen, if someone asks you for a reason for your hope, I don't think it is going to be an answer that has anything to do with either of those things I just mentioned. In fact, you probably don't even know what those words are that I just mentioned. I don't even know. I just looked them up this morning to try to sound fancy. Um, I'm kidding. But, but, but the point is that that's not our hope. Our hope is not abstract, philosophical arguments. Those things are helpful. Those things are good. Again, I don't think I've thrown away 20 years of my life studying those things. Uh, I think that's, that's really beneficial. But that is not our hope. Our hope is that Jesus suffered for us. Our hope is that Jesus rose again to prove that he is God. Our hope is that Jesus is now ruling forever as the Savior of anyone who puts their trust in him. Friends, our hope is that Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus rules. That's our hope. And if you place your faith in Jesus, you can share about that hope. You can share about that hope. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. Illiterate. He didn't write these words himself. He had to speak these words, and someone else had to write them down. He didn't know how to read or write. But he knew how to give a reason for his hope. Because he had spent some time with Jesus. And he knew how to talk about him. Friends, Jesus is our hope. And as we live with, with him as our hope, he, he's the answer we're to give when people ask us for the reason why there's hope in our hearts. And it is especially in the context of suffering that we get opportunities to share about our hope in Jesus. I think this text wants to reframe how we view suffering. Suffering is not just something that we are going to try to grit our teeth and get through. Something is actually that God can use in our lives in a profound way to not only deepen our faith, but to give us opportunities to share about our faith. You want to see God do some amazing things. Well, if you go through suffering, buckle up and watch. He is the God who knows how to bring life out of death. Oh, he can use your suffering for great and glorious purposes beyond what you could possibly imagine. There's an opportunity we have 
when we place our hope in Jesus, bear witness about him, even when we go through hard things. About a year and a half ago, one of our members here, Bella Versace, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and it did not look good. I never forget getting that phone call. I was away speaking at a conference, and she called me and shared with me her prognosis, and my heart just sunk. Uh, but Bella, you know her at all, she refused to despair. She lived with hope. She was joyful, even though her outlook was bleak. She was grateful, even though it appeared she didn't have much to be grateful about. She was peaceful, even though her future was uncertain. And if you talk to her, and we praise God that she's doing well now, health-wise, praise the Lord for that. But if you talk to her, she will not talk to you about how hard cancer was. She will talk to you about all the opportunities that God gave her to share about the hope of Jesus. And she has said this to me, cancer is the best thing to happen in life. When you live with hope, people will have questions. I know most significantly for her, someone she has been sharing the gospel of Jesus for almost 30 years. It was when they saw her going through her suffering with resilient hope. That's what God used to finally break through to that person's heart. And should we expect anything else from a God who knows how to bring death out of life? He knows how to bring life out of death. Friends, our greatest apologetic is not philosophical arguments, but is living with the hope of Jesus Christ. And when we remain unshakable in our hope, no matter how uncertain our future, we will get opportunities to speak about Jesus. And so I think this text is asking us this question, does your hope speak? Does your hope speak? When you go through fearful things, what is it that comes out of you in those moments? This text is inviting us to soak ourselves in Jesus so that when we are squeezed by life, what comes out of us is him. And, and what that means, when that, when that comes out of us, it, it should come out of us not with arrogance, not like we have it all figured out, not like we're blinded to the realities of life. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Verse 16 says we need to be ready to give a reason for our hope and to do it in a particular way. We're to do it with gentleness and respect. Followers of Jesus should never be know-it-alls or holier-than-thous. No, Jesus said that his message is that we are sinful, needy people who have nothing with which to commend ourselves to God. But our hope is that God came and didn't ask us to clean ourselves up, but came and died for our shame. And now anything good that comes out of us is not innately something that was already in us. No, it is what God is doing through us to transform us to be more like him. And so we are to speak to others gently because God's been gentle with us. We, we are to speak to others with respect because we believe God has shown how much he loves people by dying in their place. And so someone who's being a jerk but is saying they know Jesus is someone whose lips is contradicting their life. Right? We can say whatever we want, but what is our lives saying about who, what we actually believe? Gentleness and respect should mark those who believe they have been treated with the incredible mercy of God. Gentleness and respect, no matter how people treat us. Even when people treat us wrongly. Verse 17 talks about slander and reviling. People just, people just doing you dirty. We are not to respond in kind. 
but to respond by being kind. That's hopeful living. That's living that will call some questions. That's having a hope that will speak. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, oh man, people are not asking me for the question of my hope. Comrade Ike is usually, what's wrong? Is everything okay with you? You seem to be really overwhelmed. You seem to be really stressed out. And you're immediately thinking of, oh, man. And that now, now not only uh, are you still feeling stressed out, now you're also feeling like I failed Jesus, and that just compounds everything. Uh, thanks for coming to church this morning. Um, friends, here's what we need to remember. The way we have hope is not by trying to conjure up a greater strength in ourselves. The way we have hope is by recognizing that we are people who have nothing in ourselves. The way we have hope is by soaking in Jesus. Your hope this morning is not that you're going to be able to get your life together. Your hope this morning is not that you're going to be able to get all figured out. Your hope this morning is not that whatever is stressing you out is going to go away. Your hope this morning is not that whatever is making you feel overwhelmed is all of a sudden not going to be overwhelming. But your hope this morning is not that you're going to be able to work through all those things. Your hope this morning is that Jesus died for you. And Jesus rose again to prove that his death was enough to cover your death. death. And Jesus now rules forever and no one can take him off his throne, which is a throne of grace. And so he invites you to come to him this morning. And to soak yourself in him. And when life squeezes you, maybe what's been coming out of you is fear. Maybe what's coming out of you is anxiety. Maybe what's coming out of you has been depression and discouragement. Maybe that's what's been coming out of you. Instead of being discouraged by that, that's an invitation. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with all that. And soak him. Rest more in what he has done for you. And this is what we want to be as a church. We want to be a Jesus-soaking community. We come together and remind ourselves of these things week after week after week. Because guess what? When we walk out these doors, uh, to live in this world is to be like a sponge that's living in a hot tundra, right? The things of this life want to dehydrate and, and, and remove our hope in Christ. And so we come together as a community to fill ourselves afresh with him because we need his hope in us. Life will squeeze us and this world will try to dry us up. But we come together to be a Jesus-soaking community that rests together in his death and in his life and in his rule. This is why we're here. This is why our name is Christ Church. It's because we come together to rest in Jesus. So that when we're squeezed, he's the one who comes out of us. As we sing in that new song that we learned last week, and we're going to sing again in a moment, when my heart is torn asunder and my world just falls apart, Lord, you put me back together and lift me up to where you are. There is hope beyond the suffering. Joy beyond the tears. Peace in every tragedy. Love that conquers for I found redemption in my Savior's blood. My body might be dying, but I'll always be alive. Friends, this is our hope. Our hope is that whatever dark cave we might find ourselves in, it's actually not a cave. Because Jesus has punched through it, it's a tunnel, it's going to lead us to everlasting life with Him. There is nothing that we can go through in life that can separate us from His love. And so when tempted to fear and anxiety and stress and all those things, all those things we want to suck out our hope, let's not forfeit our hope and act as if Jesus is dead. Let's remember our hope 
He is alive. And He is reigning over all. And if you're here and you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, thanks for coming. Thanks for being willing to put yourself out there and be in a place where you can ask questions and where questions can be asked of you. Respect you for being here. I also don't believe it's by chance that you're here. I believe God has you here because He loves you. And He doesn't want you to continue to go through life without knowing the hope within. And He has you here this morning because He wants you to have the hope of Christ come into your life for the very first time. And so whether you're here and you're a Christian and you need to soak afresh like me, I need to be soaked afresh in the hope of Christ. Whether you're here and you've not yet become a Christian, this morning God's giving you an opportunity to soak in Him for the first time. Whether it's for the thousandth time or the first time, friends, this text is reminding us that Jesus Christ, we are to honor Him as our Lord. He is the one who died, who rose, and who rules. And when we believe that and treasure Him, that's how we fill ourselves with hope. And that's how we have a hope that speaks loudly. Not about how we're great people. It speaks loudly about the greatness of our God. Let's bow our heads in prayer.